Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas this September 24th through the 25th at the National Faith Driven Entrepreneur Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Phil Vischer, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur in the marketplace, as a person of faith, there is a deep sense of God's calling, of God's presence, of the Spirit's empowerment, of the Spirit's empowerment for creativity, the impetus for risk that's not tied to identity. I mean, I'm just saying there's so much positive. Can I just say that, Russ? I mean, there's so much positive that drives a hopeful realism and an optimism in entrepreneurship. It's also true, right? I mean, as a follower of Jesus, if we're a people of faith, when we enter that marketplace, we are entering a conflict zone, just like all of life is a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. So we need to enter that space on a Monday or whatever, understanding that we live in a battle zone between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And I think people often forget that. There's the world, we call it in biblical language, the world of flesh and the devil, but we often forget that that reality confronts us every moment in our entrepreneurial endeavor. Hey everybody, it's the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for finding us again this week. On December 15th, 2019, it was a Sunday, something really cool happened. The New York Times decided that the cover story for the review section, full page, would be titled this, What Would Jesus Do About Inequality? Now, what you may not know is that you were in that article. Yeah, that's right. You, all of us, the listeners of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast, we were highlighted as a piece of the bigger puzzle about what's going on in America with faith, work, and entrepreneurship. We've invited Tom Nelson, who was also in the article from the organization Made to Flourish, to come on and have a conversation with us about where are things sitting today. He wrote a great book called The Economics of Neighborly Love, and he's going to bring a lot of those principles into the conversation as well. So let's stop here. Let's jump into the conversation in this special episode of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. For anybody who doesn't already know this, and we've tried very hard to get out there on public and social media. The New York Times recently featured an article on faith-driven entrepreneurship and where the movement is headed and where this podcast was mentioned, which was pretty cool. And you can think that the New York Times is too liberal. You can think the New York Times is too conservative, probably less people in the latter camp. But I think that by and large, it was a super cool thing to see the New York Times spend some airtime on what faith-driven entrepreneurship looks like what people who are serious about their Christian faith are thinking about as they create ventures to advance God's kingdom on earth as is in heaven. So that was super encouraging to all of us. If you haven't already seen it, there'll be a link, of course, in our show notes. And today we want to pick up on that. In today's episode, we want to spend time talking about where the faith-driven entrepreneurship conversation is in the cultural conversation. It gets written in the New York Times, different places like that. And to be clear, not just faith-driven entrepreneurship in this podcast, but also some other great organizations 
to include Made to Flourish, which is going to be segue here in a second to our guests, but Praxis and some other great organizations. But we want to dive into progress that's been made largely in the broader cultural context, where things are left to be done, and what are some of the opportunities and obstacles ahead. And when we thought about having this discussion as a team, we thought, of course, it would be a great opportunity to have Tom Nelson back with us, Made to Flourish, as mentioned in this New York Times article. We spent some time talking with Tom in person and then over the phone, and of course, on the podcast that you can reference back. And a ministry that Tom Storage, which is Made to Flourish, is one that a lot of us have known about and really trying to come alongside pastors and help equip their parishioners, their congregants, their flocks to be able to be intentional about their faith in the workplace and beyond. So, Tom, thank you very much for being on the show. It's great to be with you. So your work was obviously a big part of this piece we're talking about. And I want to get Rusty and Williams take on this, too. But I'd love for you to start us off. And for those on the podcast who may not be really familiar with Made to Flourish, talk briefly about what you guys are doing and then transition to what you thought of the article and then how this broader conversation is being played out in the cultural context, please. Yeah, Henry, that's a lot in that question. But first of all, Made to Flourish is four years old and we're a national organization that's really helping not only pastors, but first and foremost pastors to really connect Sunday to Monday and whole life discipleship. Our mission is to really help pastors really empower and equip their congregations for the flourishing of their community. We do that by the integration of faith, work, and economic wisdom. We call it the FWI. So we're deeply a faith and work movement, but we're also very committed to the E, which is the outworking of of really thoughtful faith and work. So we're trying to help pastors, particularly in churches and congregations, take seriously how their faith profoundly shapes economic thinking and economic life and the flourishing of their communities. So it's a pretty cool opportunity, and the Lord has blessed us in these first four years. And we were really thrilled very surprised since we're so young, even though we have a national footprint now, that the New York Times article would begin with our latest Common Good Conference, which was really exciting. And anytime the media takes notice of you, there's always kind of a double take, right? For all of us, it's like, we hope it's positive. But I was really encouraged that they began with Made to Flourish. Obviously, they highlighted great organizations like Eventide and Sovereign Capital and Praxis and people that I love and respect. But I was really encouraged by the tone. I was encouraged by the emphasis of people who are doing things. And I think the big piece I would just say starting out is we hear from very thoughtful cultural observers how the big apologetic question of our time for people of Christian faith is not whether Christian faith is really true. Not that that doesn't matter, but is it really good? And I think just an overview, and I would love to hear your take on it, but what I was most encouraged by the article is that rather than painting the evangelical word in a partisan label, it painted it in something that's doing good in the world. And I think that's something to celebrate in our movement. So I thought it was too. You know, one of the things that I reflected on, and I've heard some commentary on this, and I can see how people might say this, which is a a thought of, wow, isn't it nice and cute that the Christians have finally figured this out and they finally come around to what we've always known has been true. And I think that that was maybe a fair critique of the tone of the article. But more importantly, I think that it actually betrays something that is actually true, which is if you go to Africa 120, 130 years ago, it was the Christ followers that were setting up the school and it was the Christ followers that were setting up the hospitals. But I don't know that the Christ followers have been at the front of, say, impact investing movement or some other things that might really impact the way that business is used or that entrepreneurship is viewed, and to be clear, with some great exceptions. But I think that was a good challenge, which is 
why, if they are commenting that we're now just coming around to their way of thinking, is that valid? Is this an encouragement and is it a challenge for us to go ahead and to be leaders in that sector, in that sphere, the way we once were and maybe continue to be in education and healthcare? Yeah, I would affirm what you're saying. I don't know what uh, Rusty and the crew wants to say on that, but I would very much say that's true. I think so often we've been pigeonholed again right now in a partisan political movement. And many of us who are pastors on the ground often feel deeply marginalized in terms of our contribution to the common good. So I do think we have a marvelous heritage. What has been lacking, which is part of my role, is to build a robust theological bridge to this economic activity, whether it's investment or entrepreneurship, that's what we've lacked. And I think if more and more people understand that it is the direct outworking of a robust theology, that what we think we're now entering the fray and people think we're just getting it, but we've had it a long time. We just haven't had a theological richness that informs this. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah, I thought just from the headline, so I have it in front of me. If you saw it online, it was one thing. But if you see it in print, right, it was the entire front page of the Sunday Review, December 15th. And the headline was, the faith and work movement wants to bend the gospel back toward economic justice. And what would Jesus do about inequality? And, you know, to your point about common good, Tom, and, you know, you've got your book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, that's just right down the fairway. Mm -hmm. right, with this question. I think the article, what it did for me was it said all the faith and work things that we're doing, all the ministries that we've been trying to do, it puts it right back on our shoulders to say, think more deeply about why you bring your faith to work. Think more deeply about how your faith will be expressed through your work to your constituents, whether it's your shareholders, your employees, your customers, and your community. And that's the piece that really struck with me was that economic justice, the inequality that we're seeing around us, what's our role? And we have a role. And I felt positively challenged by it. I will say this on the partisanship side, you know, I've had this conversation. It's almost like nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Nothing good will come out of the New York Times. I'm like, come on, guys. You know, you got to read it just to appreciate the fact that in the zeitgeist for a moment now, is the fact that those who care about their faith and work and economic justice are being recognized and challenged. And challenged. Indeed, indeed. Rusty, why don't you take it from here and shift away from the specifics of the article and then look at the conversation more broadly. And also, why don't you mention the work that Tom put out with his book and the impact as you read through that and you process it with a faith-driven entrepreneurship lens, some of the thoughts you had. Sure. First of all, it's a fantastic book. It's called The Economics of Neighborly Love, Investing in Your Community's Compassion and Capacity. And while, Tom, I think you had two audiences that you were writing here to, pastors, but also those of us in the marketplace trying to challenge us there too to invest in our community. I feel like right now what is going on is that I'm going to use this word, although it's probably too strong of a word, but maybe not. The toxicity of the marketplace as it relates to either capitalism or the behavior of those in corporations. There is a moment here where those who work, especially those who are younger, who are coming into the workforce, and consumers 
are expecting more out of corporations. And there are certain CEOs, including the business roundtable that we've seen, who have now restated their purpose and they've added in a broader set of stakeholders, including their communities that they need to serve, are now looking for uh, a more enlightened, if you will, corporate executive, corporate identity. And when you start to think about that, and if you're in one of those roles, which many entrepreneurs are and those who run businesses, then you start to search for meaning, then you start to search for purpose, then you start to look at your values. And it's a natural opening for those of us with faith to lead ourselves into that conversation. So I actually feel like there's some tailwinds that we're getting right now. And maybe, Tom, you want to talk about that because you do a great job of trying to put us on the corner of that intersection between, you know, our faith and our work and our role in the community. Yeah, Rusty, I love the tailwind analogy because across the country, I do sense this. And when I think about the economics and neighbor love and what we try to do and how it relates to the entrepreneur and entrepreneurial mindset and risk and so forth, what I tried to do, I'm just saying in this book, is I tried to build a robust bridge from theology to life. And many times people have done entrepreneurial things, but they haven't had the motivation, the energy around why. Why is entrepreneurship so important in the biblical story and our biblical faith? So whether we're entrepreneurs directly or have an entrepreneurial spirit, that's what's been so missing. And what I'm trying to do is build a bridge of why that's so important, not only from creation, but in loving our neighbor that this is woven into what it means to be human and to love others. And what I'm really trying to encourage is to build this sense of capacity, that capacity matters in love. And that capacity comes out of our fruitfulness in creation and wealth creation and in a broader community. So I run, in fact, I met with a wonderful entrepreneur this morning who was involved with Praxis. And we were talking so much about her journey and a big part of it, she's one of my parishioners. She said, help me again, remember why I'm doing this from a biblical standpoint, from a theological standpoint. So I'm just saying, I think that is also really helpful to think through why it's so important for human flourishing in our faith to be focused on capacity building. You know, and one of the things I do in this book, I try to address the perils of both prosperity gospel, that's a distortion, but also poverty gospel. And I find people are often caught in the middle somewhere trying to figure out well, wealth is bad, or I shouldn't do this, or it's all about God's blessing. So I hope that this book will really be a helpful bridge to help the entrepreneur, the Christian entrepreneur, entrepreneur of faith, to understand why this is so important. That comes through so clearly in the book, Tom, and you articulate it so well. One of the things that really struck me, especially as an entrepreneur and one who coaches and advises entrepreneurs, is when you talk about the intersection of faith, work, and economics coming together, you actually quote something from Jim Clifton from the coming job wars. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read that quote coming from him, but from your book. They surveyed 120,000 people in 150 countries in the world. And Clifton wrote, six years into our global collection effort, we may have already found the single most searing, clarifying, helpful world-altering fact. What the whole world wants is a good job. And so as an entrepreneur, you know, we create one good job. We're being fruitful. 
right? We're being productive. We are doing that. And then, of course, you then turn around and you say, what will the church's response be to this in the movement in history? So you put it back on the church at that point. But I think it's on all of us. Yeah, John Perkins, the great civil rights activist, and he has said, people need two things. I love this quote. People need two things for meaning, dignity, purpose. They need Jesus and a job. Isn't that classic? Amen. Brilliantly said. And of course, that calls the entrepreneur to enter into that space. Hey, Tom, William here. I want to go back to something you said a second ago, because I think these words get thrown out often. And I would love for you to maybe just take a few minutes and walk through what your version of the prosperity gospel is and what the poverty gospel is and why they don't line up with the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I unpack more of that when I'm in my book. But the prosperity gospel makes the case that basically God wants us to be material wealthy. If we're a person of faith, there's material abundance tied to that, to God's blessing. Now, that's very unbiblical because we see both God's planned blessing is sometimes suffering, not just bounty, right? So, I mean, it's a complete distortion of equating God's favor, faith, and material abundance or comfort. And yet it's so prevalent in different ways. The poverty gospel, though, is not talked about very much. And the poverty gospel is a minimization of the material world. There's a super spirituality of material impoverishment that somehow equates material impoverishment with spiritual goodness or spiritual maturity. So I'm just saying both of those don't line up in scripture at all. And so God calls us to understand the importance of understanding the role of material goodness in creation and the importance of material reality and temporal reality and building into that in a way that blesses others. We are embodied creatures. We live in a material world. God said it was good. One day he's going to make it perfectly good. So a poverty gospel is a false dichotomy that minimizes the material world and the goodness of the material world. And we could spend a lot of time about that. But as you follow biblical tradition, often there is a strain of super spirituality of financial poverty or material poverty. The more material impoverished you are, the more spiritual you are. And both of them don't line up with scripture. So I'm saying some of us have strains of that. We maybe have a suspicion of wealth. And greed, again, is not tied to how much we have. It's how much uh, what we have has us. So I'm just saying those two realities, and there's much more articulation in the book, are common misunderstandings of the importance of the goodness of material well-being, the importance of wealth creation as it relates to creativity and loving our neighbor and the importance of the material world. So again, the danger again is to find our identity or greed, or, you know, it's like the rich fool who has his whole life built on material things. That's an error, but to minimize the goodness of material world is really a deep error. And it's common in our thinking today, a high suspicion of material wealth, the material wealth itself is intrinsically corrupting. Now Jesus has warnings against that, right? the danger of that, but it's not the level of how much we have. Ultimately, it's what we do with it and what has us in terms of idolatry. So both of them are very perilous. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to a little bit on the cultural side of what's going on and get your take on this, Tom. So obviously, you know, we've already talked about the fact that uh, maybe some more things are happening in the mainstream around the faith and work movements. What's your take on advice you might have for entrepreneurs or people who are trying to bring their faith and work together around the difficulty of being a Christian in the marketplace? You know, obviously, the more things are highlighted, the more the responsibility comes upon us. We have greater accountability. We 
have a greater witness that we must uphold. At the same time, we're trying to expand that. So how do you think about that balance and advice you could give? Well, I think I would say two things. One is the opportunity is immense. So I'm very positive about this. Not that they're not hardships, but as an entrepreneur in the marketplace, as a person of faith, there is a deep sense of God's calling, of God's presence, of the Spirit's empowerment, of the Spirit's empowerment for creativity, the impetus for risk that's not tied to identity. I mean, I'm just saying there's so much positive. Can I just say that, Russ? I mean, there's so much positive that drives a hopeful realism and an optimism in entrepreneurship. It's also true, right? I mean, as a follower of Jesus, if we're a people of faith, when we enter that marketplace, we are entering a conflict zone, just like all of life is a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. So we need to enter that space on a Monday or whatever, understanding that we live in a battle zone between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And I think people often forget that. There's the world, we call it in biblical language, the world of flesh and the devil, but we often forget that that reality confronts us every moment in our entrepreneurial endeavor. Every time we enter the marketplace, when we leave our door, when we get on the phone. So I'm just saying, I think it's to realize that there is a spiritual warfare going on. The great Martin Luther, when he talked about, I think we miss this. I'm just saying in an imminent frame world, I think we miss this. In his mighty fortresses, our God, he said that we have a very strong adversary. Remember, he says, our ancient foe does seek to work us well. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. My point is simply not to over-sensationalize the evil, but when we are involved with our Monday life, we should expect opposition as well as great resources. So opposition with our own issues of our own life and conflict in the organization, the challenges of a global economy. So I just want to simply say that there are great resources we bring to the marketplace. There are also great oppositions. And I think sometimes we have a naive space there where we do not realize the challenges that face us as followers of Jesus. Not so much, remember, an individual because we're to love our enemies or those who are, don't like us, but to realize we're in a spiritual war. And I hope I'm not overstating that, but I find entrepreneurs need to keep reminding them, just like pastors, that we live in this world. So I like that a lot. You've got a background, of course, in the marketplace, but you're also a pastor. And so I want to ask you about a question that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, and that is this conflict in the spiritual realm, if you will. And I think that you appropriately point out the fact that we're going off and every day we're going off into some battle and we should expect that there's going to be conflict in the organization and conflict becomes without. But a lot of times I think an entrepreneur feels conflict within. Yes. It feels like it would be easier to be a secular, non-believing entrepreneur I'm all about shareholder return, you know, sales and customer acquisition costs and taking domination. And that's my unapologetic goal is to advance this. And I don't have to worry about advancing the kingdom of God. And I don't have to worry about the kind of mixed feelings and emotions that I have about struggling with my spirituality and how I'm an effective witness. I find that that conflict, that spiritual conflict, the lies the enemy might tell us, oftentimes aren't so much external as internal as a pastor, how do you see that with the entrepreneurs that you're mentoring like this woman you did this morning? Yeah, I see that a lot because I think it relates to a sense of constant reflection on what our identity is. So when I sit down with an entrepreneur or someone that's in my parish, I want to remind them of who they are in Christ, the richness of who they are in Christ, what it means to be a yoked apprentice of Jesus. 
So I do know that internal struggle. There's a sense of fragility. There's this fear, right, that we have in entrepreneurship. There's a sense of questioning our own identity, our own capacity. You know, I make the distinction when I work with people is saying, you know, there's a difference between adequacy and competency. As a follower of Jesus, we are continually to grow in competency in my entrepreneurial endeavor. But my adequacy is always God. I mean, if we enter that zone as a Christian, our adequacy to be God's people, to do his work is not centered in ourselves. And I tell people, when I get out of bed in the morning, when I roll out of bed, the first thing that comes to my mind often is I'm out of my pay grade, right? I'm above my pay grade. So I'm just saying, I want to encourage entrepreneurs of faith to realize that their adequacy every moment is in God. And also with that comes the great adventure of great accomplishment, There can be a really hopeful anticipation that, yes, with God's help, I can do this. And I can do this in a way that honors God and brings flourishing to people. So I'd go back to identity, and I'd go back to a sense of empowerment to do that. I constantly remind them of that. Like God's called you, has empowered you. He will be there with you. So, Tom, you're special because you understand this relationship. And anybody who's a congregant, a member of your church is really blessed. But not all churches, not all pastors are this enlightened. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm out there. Um, you know, you talk about the Sunday to Monday gap. Yep. And you also talk about in order for the gospel ecosystem to flourish, that a community, a city, pastors, Christian leaders have to all come together to make it happen. What if I've got a pastor that just doesn't get it? What do I do? <laughs> I get asked that. A lot. So uh, just a couple things. It's one of the questions I'm asked more than anything else when I travel around the country. Most parishioners love their pastor. They're good people. But I find that deep frustration. So what I can simply say is, first of all, love your pastor, pray for them, but also maybe encourage them. You know, I'm a reader. A lot of pastors are reader to read a book or two from people they respect and to begin to think about what this paradigm of pastoral discipleship really looks like. Because what we're facing is not only a praxis issue, we're facing a pastoral paradigm issue. Does that make sense? Many of us are trained with a vocational paradigm that is about people coming to church on Sunday, we equip them and then deploy them. Okay, That's not a biblical paradigm, right? The biblical paradigm is we don't deploy the equip, we equip the deployed. And that's not word games. God has already deployed his people all throughout the world on Monday. And it's beginning to help pastors begin to think about how do they equip where people have already been deployed, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're professionals. So I would just say, first of all, pray for your pastor, try to expose them to some thinking, reading on this, and probably the framing of whole life discipleship, because many pastors believe in discipleship. They just don't have an understanding of whole life discipleship. They have an impoverished pastoral vocational paradigm. And then I hope things like Made to Flourish will help them You know, this is a broad national network of other pastors who are learning, unlearning, and growing in this endeavor. But it is a great frustration. I'm so sorry about that. But I was there 20-some years ago. So I'm just saying I'm glad some people were patient because I committed pastoral malpractice. Well, you also suggest that pastors should visit the workplace. So maybe that is something we can all do is we can invite our pastor to come to work. Yes. Come to my workplace. Have lunch with me. Let me walk you around, show you the world that, I, that I'm in yes. on Monday through Friday through Saturday. And just by exposure, right, it opens up yeah. a new paradigm. for. Bring them. your child to work day. Bring your, bring your pastor to work day. I think Tom and all of us should start that. We should I have a so. national take your pastor to work week. 
Yeah, I think I've heard you mention that idea before, Rusty. Uh, you had me intrigued. When we talk about books and encouraging some of your pastors who read books, clearly we've got one. Rusty already talked about yours and how that's impacted the way that he thinks about culture in the workplace. What are some others that helped you over those 20 years? Yeah, I think one of the great books that has helped me is Os Guinness's The Call. Because Os Guinness, many years ago, framed the idea of primary and secondary calling and opened my eyes to the broadness of calling. Recently, you know, again, what I tried to do with Work Matters, which is 10 years old, but I tried to give the broad biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and then Jesus as a worker to at least frame. I want to ask, so you are a pastor that works with a bunch of pastors. You're obviously involved in business movements. You know, the church is blessed by God. The church is beloved by God. It's his plan for so much as we read through scripture. What would be your hope and vision for the church to insert themselves into this world? I mean, I know it's probably in made to flourish somewhere, but, you know, the church, I mean, we, we started off with this New York Times article. We talked about, you know, some partisan views of things. I feel like the church definitely has a negative tint to it, at least right now in, in mainstream culture. What role does the church have to play and what would be your dream uh, that maybe God's put on your heart for that role? Yeah, I would hope that the church based on a theological rediscovery, maybe for many it's a rediscovery of a more integral faith, out of that conviction would begin to think through the implications in all dimensions of human life. Let's just use the big word, whole life discipleship. That the church would truly embrace a much more robust idea of equipping those who are already deployed by God on Monday. And if the local church would do that, and whatever the vocation is, then there would be a profound connection that the Christian faith is not just about being a good Christian on Sunday. It's living this kingdom life in every dimension of life in an exciting, energetic, and passionate way. The local church can awake, but the pastors and leaders have to rethink their paradigm of mission and discipleship. And it has to be driven by theology, not in a cold way, but this is what the Christian faith is. And this is implications in the world. And I would say one other thing, I did this in a podcast with Colin Hansen. I think we're at a place of incredible opportunity because just like the first century, we had the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome that created this. And we also had the amazing Roman road that took the gospel and the Christian faith to the world. We are at the same place with a global economy and the internet and the information age. And the intersection of the church's mission right now is profoundly bringing those together. So for a church not to be equipping and thinking about their parishioners in the workplace, the global workplace, is to absolutely miss the most missional central opportunity in the world. It's not a thing on the side. It's where the intersection of the global economy, the information age, You know, our people touch the globe every week like never before. So I'm just saying, today we are at a Pax Romana, Roman road opportunity for the church to take its message to the world. And I would just say the big question I mentioned earlier is not just that it's true. We believe Jesus is who he said he is and that his kingdom is coming and his life that he offers is the good, true, and beautiful life. I believe that with all my heart. But it also has to be communicated that Jesus is good and his church is good for the world. And I think that's the big apologetic question. And the workplace is the greatest place for that to be incarnated. Well, if we use the language of entrepreneurs, right, we would talk about it as the TAM. What's the total addressable market? Yeah. Well, 
is there a bigger addressable market than work? Because we all work, right? Unless we were independently wealthy or we're retired or we're just not old enough yet, we work. That's where the global world has come together at that marketplace space. And the church is often way out on the edge rather than the intersection of that. I I was preaching there, guys. Sorry. Hey, (laughs) I'm just bring a preacher on and don't expect him to preach. I want to cry out, guys. I want to cry out because not that I am so enlightened. But for a local church and a pastor or an entrepreneurial leader in the church to not make this at the heart of their biblical mission for the world is to miss the moment, let alone the theology of it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's the most amazing opportunity. That's why I'm so passionate about Made to Flourish and what you're doing, because it is where the intersection is. I mean, hey. I'm preaching to the choir maybe, but... Yes, you are, but that's great. Hey, the choir needs good words too. But pray the local church wakes up and many of us pastors need an awakening. Let's do this. I'm going to invite you to do two things for us as we come to a close. Yeah. One's a little different than usual. Uh, one would be if you would let our listeners in to where God has you and maybe what yeah. scripture he might have brought to your life during this season, during this day. It's just always fun to see how God weaves those stories among our listeners and our guests. And then secondarily, if you wouldn't mind after that, finishing off by just praying for what you just said, praying for that to come as we yeah. close the episode. Well, thank you. And where I am today, so this is my daily bread today. I'm actually preaching a sermon Sunday. We're doing a series with Luke at Christ Community in Kansas City and all our campuses. And Luke chapter three, we're going to Luke chapter three. It's the proclamation of John the Baptist. When you think about John the Baptist, his message of the kingdom is repent, right? So I'm just saying it was repent, repent means to turn, right? But his focus of repentance, the people ask him three times in Luke three, what should we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? Which is fascinating, right? It's not how should we think, it's what shall we do? This Greek word is very much hands-on, right? We're all hands-on people. And the response, go look at Luke 3. The response is fascinating because John the Baptist's response as he begins to point us to Christ is not a religious response. It's an economic one. First, he says, if you have two tunics, give one. So it's a call to generosity. Repent. If you have material means and you're not generous with it, that's what you need to do. But then he addresses, if you remember, two vocations. Remember that? Tax collectors and soldiers. So you guys don't need the sermon, but I'm saying I'm so stunned in a new way that John the Baptist's initial message of repentance to prepare for Jesus, the king, to come is an economic message. What does our repentance look like on Monday? Remember the soldier or tax collector, they were both not liked very much right? But he doesn't tell him, stop doing it. Stop doing your work. He simply says, do it in the right way. Yeah. And be content at the end, right? Isn't that fascinating? So I guess that's where I am right now as I'm preparing for a Sunday message in my own life. I'm just so stunned by how important our Monday life is to God and to the gospel and to repent. So the question I just have in my life as for pastors, right? my New Year's 2020 is not about a resolution. It's about repentance. Where does God want me to repent in my Monday life? And that's where I am today, guys. That's a great word. Amen. Pray for us, please. Yes. So, Lord, thank you so much for this work, uh, faith-driven entrepreneurial work. Thank you for my colleagues. We do pray, Lord, that you would confirm the work of their hands, that the words that have been spoken, may they be honoring to you. May all who hear these words, as feeble and frail and maybe fragmented they are in our humble attempts to talk about something really important. So, Lord, we lay before you our little loaves and fishes of this podcast and uh, pray that a word that has been said, a thought that has been launched that would bear much fruit and multiply it, Lord. And we do pray for your church. You love your church. 
and may you bring renewal to your church across our land. May we love what you love and may we disciple, equip your followers, Lord, for all of life. And may we have a global heart and may the marketplace be that place where you are worshiped as you have to be worshiped, where people are spiritually formed, where the gospel plausibility and proclamation takes place and where the common good, neighborly love is furthered. Mm-hmm. So pray this, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. As we finish each episode, we like to spotlight a partner that locks arms with faith-driven entrepreneurs. Can't think of anybody better to spotlight this week than our friends Dave Blanchard and the team that lead Praxis. They're a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship, supporting founders, funders, and innovators, motivated by their faith to renew culture and love their neighbors. Their community of practice operates through high-touch programs, robust content, and a global portfolio of redemptive businesses and nonprofit ventures. We'd encourage you to check them out and also the list of top 20 accelerators and capacity builders for faith-driven entrepreneurs to see how you can be engaged. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.